welcome to the very first episode of the Axel Bunny podcast. I'm Elliot Axelman, but you can call me Alu, and this is my lovely fiance Kate. His name is Kate. And soon to be Axelman, hopefully in a month or two if the government lets us get married. True, yes. We would have been married, we just postponed our wedding. So she'll be an Axelman, I'm an Axelman, come from a long line of Axelmans, obviously. We have a lot of us who are involved in money, or at least in business, mm -hmm. and I'm learning more about money every day, and I'm loving it. The more I learn about it, the more I love it, and I assume you love money too. I do. <laughs> and uh, that's why it's the Axel Money Podcast, so I'm an Axelman, you'll be an Axelman very soon, but we're happy to have you. And um, it's a famous quote from Idiocracy, if you've seen the movie, Idiocracy. It's a famous quote. A guy says, I love money. Oh. He's one of the very low IQ people. He says, I love money. So <laughs> I, I do love money. <laughs> so I, um, I love money. I love capitalism. And, and that's what this show is going to be about. Now, I would preface this by saying we're not experts. We're not financial advisors or anything, obviously. But we're not even experts on money. And we're not even that experienced. We've only even had credit scores for even a few years now. But... This show, unlike some others, is going to be more of a journey of us, you know, on our path to financial independence and eventually retiring in our dreams, hopefully on, on some kind of great passive income, which we're going to get into throughout the uh, show in future episodes. So it's going to be a path of us learning and teaching you and hopefully our listeners teaching us as well, because I'm sure if we have any listeners, then I'm sure we have listeners who know more about money than we do. But it's going to be a path of us learning about Money. I've learned a lot about money and something about investing the last few years. You've learned a lot about money, credit scores, jobs, houses. We bought a house, so we learned that. So we've learned a lot, and we're constantly learning more every day. And all the other Axelmans, we have a big family. All the other Axelmans have you know some relationship with money that I don't, so we all have a unique perspective. Some have made, we've all made some money. Some have made more than others. Some are studying business, money, accountants, law school, business law. Some have dealt with a hundred, I think, hundred million dollar uh, mortgage refinance deals. So that's a lot of money going through their hands. Um, so we have a lot of experience of varying perspectives on money. And hopefully, if my family members are willing to be guests, in each week we'll have them, and then eventually some other friends as guests on the show. Yes, we also have friends that used to work in a bank, um, yep. real estate um, brokers. So people who not necessarily are experts, but do have um, some, At least some perspective some, and some experience, some background with like stuff about finances. So one of the first things that I want to do, and since we do have you here this week, and I'm hoping you'll be a regular co-host, but we all are busy and crazy. So I'll take whoever I can get every week. If I can get you or, or anyone else, or I'll do it alone. But... I, since we do have you here, I want you to talk about a bit of your journey from the Philippines to the U.S. and how you essentially embody the American dream. So if you want to give the basics of, of your journey here and what you think the American dream is to you personally, what it means to you. Well, I guess um, American dream is more of um, being financially independent, more of... Um, how would you say that? Like owning a house with a backyard. And having some and, wealth. Yeah, not worrying much about your finances or like doing well just in general or comfortable. Not necessarily rich, but like 
I guess I had that idea coming in. Um, it was always said, like, from, I guess most people have this connotation that America is, is, is more of a land for greener pastures, that there's more opportunity here. And true enough, I, I believe that that's the case. Um, when I was um, 19, I moved to New York City with my family. Um, I started working and a month after I got here, as soon as I got my green card, started working at McDonald's, like minimum wage, seven twenty-five an hour. In New York, that's still like low. But yeah, I worked there for eight months. And since I had like, um, I went through nursing um, for like a year. So my aunt was able to get me into a hospital job for, um, Is it tech? Is it tech or something? Yeah, it's, well, the, it's the fun. It functions more as like a, a aid. An aid, so it's more like bathing, feeding patients, stuff like that. So it was very basic, but I got laid off three months in. I was doing great because I had, that was like my first job that I was like making more than seven twenty five. Mm-hmm. It was what sixteen dollars an hour, right. and that was big when it was twenty eleven. I was like, oh my god, I'm rich, but I'm really not. Um, I got laid off three. Um, three months in because um, the hospital had a lot of issues and then from then on I worked like odd jobs mostly like barista like bakery stuff eventually I became paramedic and I was able to like make a bit more than what I was making well and before you even got just to jump back a little bit to rewind before you even got to the US you and your mother and your mother's mother waited for for was it 20 or 30 or 40 years for a visa to the US? Um, almost 20 years, yes. Probably a bit more than that. Because Incredible. the whole process kind of got stopped when my um, deceased grandmother um, passed away. When she passed away, um, the whole process stopped. And my um, relatives over here in New, I mean, in New York had to kind of like um, restart the whole process. Mm-hmm. So that was another like five, no, I think it was more like two or three years because there were a lot of people pushing for it mm-hmm. and a lot of um, uh, funds had to go in. They had to show that they can take care of us when we yeah, get yeah. here. So it was a long process. It's incredible. Over 20 years waiting and to, just to get a visa, just to be able to come to Yeah, it was more for my mother, but because my mom had dependents, had a husband and um, kids, it was a longer process because instead of one, that they are not trying to bring more five more people. But because my brother was not eligible because he was above 21, he he did not make it to the cut. And so did my other older cousins. But yeah. Yeah. So you're in the U.S. So you're working in a bakery. While working in a bakery, you're commuting a few hours each way. Oh, and you're was, also going to school. From where I live in Queens, it, t- it takes me two hours to get, <laughs> to get to work because it's like a 40... 30 to 40 minute um, bus ride towards um, the subway and then subway it's good if it's rush hour but if it's not it takes forever it takes me like an hour and a half going there but with the rush trap I'm sorry with um rush hour sometimes it just, t- it just takes me an hour and a half and you go home and then you go also to West Queens LaGuardia which is apparently the western tip of Queens for college yeah, it's, it's, for two years yep 
Um, my school at that time, when I was taking my associate's degree, was LaGuardia, which is at the edge of um, And you are Queens. on the eastern border of Queens. Yes. LaGuardia is so literally, like, point to point, that takes also an hour and a half. Some, It's technically just an hour away, but because I have to wait for, like... Um, Buses and... Buses trains. and, like, um, train delays and going up and down because it's above the subway. So we didn't things. have a car yet, or it just wasn't even efficient to drive? No, and parking would be horrible, and yeah. it would be more expensive, and honestly, I didn't even have the money for a car. So it was just, like, so much easier to get from point A to point mm -hmm. B with, like, public transportation. I'm not saying it's efficient, but it's, like, the most cost-effective yeah. at that time. So you were in school for two years, which is great, because that included, those two years included EMT, some other courses, and a paramedic cert, and you finished with an EMT card. A paramedic certification card and an associate degree. Associate degree. But you had, you know, FAFSA didn't cover as much as you thought they would or something, and you had some student loan debt? Um, no, they actually covered everything for an okay. associate's degree. Because but for the bachelor, you didn't get as much as you help you thought you'd get? I didn't. My, so you had some student loans? I did. I think I had about, like, $8,000. Did um, you put any of that on a credit card, or that was just student loans? That was just student loans. Okay. It was such a sudden thing, because... I don't know how everyone else, um, like, well, City College of New York with FAFSA, they kind of suck. They really do, honestly. It's like, it takes you by surprise. Yearly, you have to fight. <laughs> and, you have to fight to get what you, yeah. To, yeah, to, to prove yourself that you are eligible. Which is, you know, it's just right. But the process just takes forever, and um, not everyone is very responsive in the mm -hmm. registration. You just get a lot of, like, um call that like a merry-go-round like yeah, oh yeah. go to this building you deal with CUNY you... which is New York City government you're dealing with FAFSA <laughs> which is federal government right yeah you're dealing so... with big government bureaucracies that are handling uh you know thousands or millions mm. of these applications for financial aid I imagine it's like a DMV so it's well you know, DMV is worse yeah, yeah. DMV is worse at least in like um City College of New York you do have advisors and yeah ha most of the time they are very helpful the thing that happened with my last I mean my one year it no, it was, yeah, one year in John Jay, um, criminal, uh, justice of criminal justice. It was, um, it's also a CUNY school. Um, they, I was under the impression that I will be um, part of the financial aid, that I will, everything will be okay, basically. I went to multiple um, offices, made sure that my financial aid was okay. They told me, okay, it's, it's gonna be fine gonna arrive late the only thing is might be a little too close I'm like all right cool and then they told me oh no I'm sorry you're making a lot because I'm making too much money that's because I yeah because I am a paramedic at that time I was working three jobs and they were essentially telling me you make a lot so you're not eligible for that and I'm like what do you mean a lot it does so it's a very interesting point. We have to talk about this later episode. I want to talk <laughs> yeah, about that. Yeah, so I got essentially kicked out and from FAFSA. Not from FAFSA, yeah. and that was close to the midterms. And I can't take exams. Either I drop out or pay or the money, can't give them some cash or there. do installments. And at that time, I think for that semester, my total was four thousand dollars. How am I supposed to get four thousand dollars in a span of a week? So. The only option. And then she that... met me and we robbed the bank together. 
<laughs> I wish. Oh my gosh. So yeah. the only option at that time was like to start an um uh, a student loan because that was a, I don't know anyone who will lend me four thousand dollars right off the bat. And even if I do, I'm I'm too shy yeah. to actually ask. So you got that. a loan from the federal government as well. I did. So I I got the loan from um, the middleman is my the middleman is my school. So through them, I get the, the loan. Program. Yeah, okay. do, they already have like connections. Everything is set in place. All you have to do is apply. Mm -hmm. So when I applied, within a couple of days, I got in and boom. I'm free to take the exam. And this is no interest or anything until <laughs> after you graduate or something? or. Um, so for the first six months after you graduate, you don't have to pay yeah. um, anything. And then once the seventh month hits, you have to pay something. Minimum payments of what? Minimum payments, I believe, are like forgot sixty dollars or seventy dollars okay. i owed about eight thousand dollars so you've been paying 60 bucks a month ever since well i try to pay like a hundred dollars okay. at least a little bit more than that and we're gonna get into um, that as well yeah <laughs> so okay I, now I, credit cards how did you end up in, in in a credit card hole so i used to not have credit cards and <laughs> i don't have credit at all because i came from the philippines so i'm like i'm basically anyone in my family didn't have that but because I put the lease under my name most of the bills are under my name I had a little bit of credit but I still wasn't allowed to have like credit cards or like not a lot of company you know how they send like letters randomly you have a pre-approved I never received that kind of stuff well I the bakery that I used to work for is right next to a bank i'm not gonna name names <laughs> but um i pulled some strings i told them hey i just i, I was a param did I you was, give them free cookies be honest i, did, I gave them free coffees that's about <laughs> yeah. it so i told them i'm like hey i'm in this medic program and i'm kind of struggling financially for now just because like i can't work as much and I have this big expenses like books and like and you're just, taking care of your parents and your apartment. Yeah, and there were a lot of like factors happening. So they were like, "Do you think I can get a credit card just for like other like um, um, emergencies that I may not have cash on hand?" And so I was like, "Okay, yeah, yeah." I mean, it won't be the best credit limit, but it's something. And at that time, I had a credit um, limit of a thousand. That's not that bad. Some people, they start off with a few hundred. Yeah. They must, they must like you. Yeah. I was like, okay. So I started using it for books initially, and everything was fine. I was trying to pay it off as much as I can. And then it just kind of like piled up with, oh, I'm a little behind on rent, so I'm going to put the rent in the card or like the phone bill. But when I received my um, income, for, I used to get like paid weekly. I didn't have good budgeting skills at that time. And even if I did, I tend to like, oh no, it's I'm going to pay it back the next week. That kind of mentality. So eventually I kind of just fell into this loophole and I'm like, and then my credit limit kind of like started increasing. They increased Because you spend a lot, they increase your credit line. Yeah. Right? Yep. And I, before when I was very good with paying it, it would and then I would still incur like, you know, debt. It raised my limit to about $3,000. Wow. 
and I'm like, all right, this is not good. <laughs> they, they increased it, and then it just kept on piling up, and that's when the whole loop hole kind of like, I was stuck in a loop, in a loop. Yeah. yeah, I was stuck in a loop for a while, but yeah. And, and medical bills or anything for your dad you put on credit cards or no? Not really, no. Okay, okay. Um, so it's mostly just the regular... Uh... It's mostly just like the regular bills and because I was also stressed at times, I also use it to go out and like reward well, myself. Yeah. Also like small things for emergency stuff for my car when I had a car. I'm like, oh my gosh. So I just need this tire. Around, around probably two, three years ago now... Mm-hmm. We were talking. We've been dating five years. Five years. So around two years ago, we moved to New Hampshire three years ago. We rented for a year. We bought a house two years ago. And we'll talk all about the house and what we learned financially from that. It actually wasn't as big of a nightmare. It wasn't that big of a deal buying a house. It was all pretty uh, smooth and quick considering you know what we thought it would be. It's a bit um, smoother than we thought Yeah, we thought it would be hell. And we were busy working yeah. and our realtor took care of most of it. And you know we paid a few bucks and, and we just got into the house and now we have a mortgage. Um... But we were in the apartment, so this is over two years ago. I we were talking, and I finally found out your credit score, and that it was like five something, and that uh, you had you know some credit debt and some school debt. Um. Yeah. So I used to have at least like six. What was um, the credit score? My initial credit score when I started having the credit cards and everything else was about like six fifty, and then. When we had that conversation. When we had that conversation it? about three years ago, it was at five sixty. It was at five sixty because I missed a couple of payments, other things, and I wasn't paying it off as well as I should. And what did I say to you when I saw that your credit was five sixty? <laughs> pay it off. I said, yeah, let's pay it <laughs> yeah, off. Let's pay do it. it you know? credit card. Yeah. It is what it is. And, let's and just let's we, get it get it up. Yeah, we made the solid plan on how to, like, you know, tackle this problem, how to handle the, the debt, and I did it. Yeah, you were making money, yeah. and right away you started paying a few hundred bucks so or a few surprised. thousand bucks a month, Yeah. and then you blinked, and next Within, time they looked at your credit, next time they uh, reassessed it, it was like 700 already, and then it started climbing up. Or within, no, it was like 600, and then six, Within six, a year, it transitioned from 560 to 700. Yep. And then from then on, it just stayed within. Right now, as we speak, it's about seven sixty. Which is incredible. Yeah. Literally excellent. Yeah. <laughs> Literally. It's good. And it's you good. only have a few dollars left to pay on your credit cards. Yes. From like over ten thousand mm-hmm. or something, down to only a few. Yes. A few bucks left, and then your credit is going to be incredible, probably better than mine. I hope so. Um, and then. I'll, I'll say here, because again, this is learning, I'm learning, we're all learning, and, and I'm going to tell you what I've learned. I said pay off your credit cards first, because she had some credit cards and some student loans. And you still have how much in student loans? Do you know? It's still at like um, 4500 5000 Because I paid okay, like great, great. not a so, lot. So, I'll, politically, my guess is that, and I don't want to talk too much politics, but... My guess is that where the U.S. is going, I think most voters on both sides in general, one of the few things they agree on is that they want a student debt borrowing from the federal government, maybe all debt or all debt backed by the federal government, which is, I think, around 80% is ultimately federal um, as opposed yeah. to private borrowers. So I think they want it to be forgiven. Um, so what does that mean financially for the U.S. dollar and for the U.S. financial system? I don't know. It could get really hairy. But I think that in the next five years, 
that's where I see it going. So they may just forgive all the debt. That's why I said pay off your credit cards now because that affects your credit score and because they're hurting you to the tune of 18 20% every year. So it's, it's interest yeah. is hurting you and it affects your credit score. So two big reasons to pay off the credit cards first and prioritize those. And there's a, a reason not to even worry about student loans. Make the minimum payments. I don't want you going to jail because I do want this wedding to happen. But so make the minimum payments, which is, you know, 60 bucks a month. I was hoping it was like 25, but, but don't worry about even paying any extra. I would just pay the minimum that way, you know, they don't send the IRS after you or collections or something. And, and because it might be forgiven in a year and then. There are different kinds of um, student loans from okay. what I heard. And what I got essentially was like a 10 year plan. Can, um, okay. Meaning what? Meaning I have to pay um, the $8,000 within 10 years with a very little per, um, interest. Anything, if I don't get to pay that 10, 10 grand, that's when I'll incur more interest. Okay, after an eight-year period, ten-year ten period, the interest goes up. Um, well, it will be another talk with um, okay. the, what do you call that? Interesting. Yeah. Well, again, it's only, you said 5,000 left? Yes. That's not that big a deal. So again, I would make it's minimum really payments. It's really not. I could have paid it in, like off in eight, like a yeah. year. If but... in eight more years it hasn't been forgiven yet, I would be surprised. And of all the political um, predictions I've made, every single one has come true. Right? So so if in eight years, again, I could be wrong, but if in eight, like eight years, whenever that time period is up, they still haven't forgiven student debt, you'll have like 4000 left and just pay it off. It wouldn't be a big deal to you. It's right? not a big deal for me because it's like literally... I don't know anyone else who have a student debt of $8,000. Most of the people I know have $100,000, 50, minimum of like 20. I think the so, average is, is around 30 grand, I yeah. think. Yeah, and I admittedly, I did get lucky and my parents were, weren't making a lot, so I did qualify for some stuff, but it would have been really bad. It's almost like if you are going to school, don't work. <laughs> <laughs> well they incentivize you to or, not make a lot of money and yes. that's what i want to talk about and there's a, the whole so you understand the drop off it should be a slope where if you know there shouldn't be welfare but if there's welfare there should be a slope right you make a certain amount you get certain welfare you make a little more you get a bit less welfare right what happens is at some point there's a cliff where if you make more than maybe 40 grand a year they cut you off you're dead hud cuts yes. you off and maybe wick and food stamps and a whole lot of other stuff and medicaid cut you off and you're dead so, if you have a choice, and this is binary, not spectrum, this is a binary choice to get a raise. So, go from making thirty-eight grand to forty-five grand. You're going to say no to the raise because you're instead of gaining seven thousand dollars in gross income, you're losing fifty thousand dollars in net benefits, right? Because your benefits are stripped from you. So, it shouldn't be a cliff like that. Maybe it should be a, a I don't know, a tiered system of a ramp, an off ramp. And I believe that's how it should be. That's why a lot of people like would rather, you know. Not work at all. Not yeah, work yeah. at all or work And we're seeing this now with unemployment with the COVID checks, right? Yeah, most people just try to work part-time so they don't ex exceed a certain limit so they would still qualify yeah. for benefits. And I totally understand that because it's a matter of paying for like your prescription drugs for like $20. Yeah, financially it's like smart $100. to get the most bang for your buck. So financially, forget morally or politically or anything or taking welfare, whether it's moral or not, financially... People who get the most bang for their buck are smart. So if you turn down a raise because you're getting more value, more net value in Medicaid, food stamps, HUD, WIC, and all that, 
or you know, cash assistance for moms, then financially they're smart. As far as work ethic, you may think they're unethical, but as far as finances, they're smart for turning down that raise, right? And, and you know, I've heard stories of this. There was a medic work, working at one of the hospitals in New York, uh, in Queens, a medic that made, made a lot. She was there for a while, but she was per diem. Like this hospital, like a lot of other hospitals, you were a per diem, meaning on-call paramedic, and you picked up, you know, one shift, two, five, ten a week, but you weren't full-time, meaning you didn't get those same, you know, benefits of full-time. But also, if you're per diem, it depends on, on who is measuring the income, but some will measure your previous year's gross income. But in, for some of the benefits that she was getting, and she was middle-aged, so she got some benefits, maybe she had some kids. For those benefits, if she didn't have a full-time job with like a set gross income, from what I heard, at least from the rumor, is if she were per diem, she can get a lot of benefits. And she was there for a long time and she was offered that full-time spot because she was there for a while. And I heard the rumor, at least, she turned it down because she didn't want to lose a tremendous amount of benefits from the government. So she stayed per diem, still worked 40 hours a week. You can still pick up shift as a per diem, but you don't have a set schedule of 40 hours a week full-time. So I heard she turned it down, and I've heard a lot of others turning down a full-time position, staying per diem so they can stay on the benefits. And I, I, you know, there are plenty of people in New York who make money, who, who you know, trick the system and find some other loopholes and some other ways to get some benefits. I've seen, we've all seen some incredible stuff of driving nice new cars that cost 20, 30 grand and... Uh, <laughs> And having you know the newest smartphones and still getting some benefits so yeah that's another thing we could do a whole, a whole show on just the the cliff where if you make a certain amount more than than what you're making you would lose a lot of benefits and maybe it should be a bit more of a, a smooth transition from that so the other thing I, I wanted to discuss in this introductory episode is something that i find myself yelling almost every day till my my face is red about the the very very basis of economics and again i don't claim to be the greatest economist in the world that's you know milton friedman obviously but i do think i understand the basics of uh, asset and liability and, and stuff like that so i think i've written a few articles about this but we're going to write a new article just for the axel money podcast with this and we're going to explain uh, an asset and liability so the way i would define it and the way it's probably defined by by the dictionary and by economists is an asset is something that provides value to you so something that is worth money something so financially an asset would be something that is worth money maybe like a, a house or an item or money um and we will also address it in terms of overall value meaning happiness and, and you know when you buy a coffee you give up an asset which is money and you get a coffee which which is also an asset because it makes you happy and it feel, fulfills a certain need of giving you energy or nutrition or, or happiness or whatever um, so anything that you find valuable is an asset, at least in some sense, and and we'll we'll get into that later when we discuss some of the specific assets. And a liability is the exact opposite. It's something that is a detriment to your financial bottom line, or something that costs you something. So if it, if it costs you money, if you are spending money on it every month, it's financially a liability. If it's hurting you, if it's if you're hemorrhaging, then it's, it's a liability. And if, if something is, is hurting you, it would, it would be considered a liability. Anything to add to that so far? The term asset and liability seems to be easily drawn, but not a lot of people know the real deal about what is an asset. And honestly, most days I still have a hard time like distinguishing what is. Um, if you guys have read like Rich Dad, Poor Dad, they... Did you read it? I did. Oh, good. good. I did audio book. Audio book as well. I did an audiobook yeah. when I was driving to New York. Um, they clarified over there that, yes, a house is an asset, but 
up until you fully paid it or up until like if it's not uh, until it's fully paid off and, until it's, it's fully a liability paid off. financially and it's always sure. a liability because it costs you money it does and it's a continuous you're project. always spending money so it's a money yes trip. so and i was talking about this again when i when i called my sister earlier we spoke about about a house and she you know brought it up and i said i have an interesting perspective i think a house is an asset in a few reasons it's a liability for a few reasons and it's both and it's neither so it's really everything. So right now, do you enjoy having a house? I do. Bingo. That's it. End of conversation. It's an asset because you enjoy having it. It brings you happiness. It is an asset. So so that's emotionally, right? Which is fine. Emotionally, I love my house too. Okay. We love the house. Financially, I would generally say it's a liability. It costs us the mortgage and all the other stuff and property taxes. And it costs us all the stuff like we're trying to do the driveway and a lot of other stuff that costs a lot of money. Financially, it's a liability in general, although we're gaining equity in it, which is an asset in that sense because in 20 years we could sell it for probably a decent profit or at least it'll have it'll hold some value so it's an asset but financially it's a liability um emotionally it's an asset let's keep going so what other terms you know and what other perspectives is it an asset or liability and then another thing i want to get to which is the third definition which is arguably the most important thing in the world and this is what i think a lot of the show will be based on the theme is cash flow and that's something uh, Kiyosaki talks about that in Rich Dad, right? He does. Cash flow a lot. And, and and I would say cash flow is the name of the game. And literally, the board game Kiyosaki made is called Cash Flow. So he made a board game, and that's how important it is. Mm -hmm. And I didn't understand it till the last few days when I really started thinking about cash flow because of, of dividends. Because I'm finally starting to invest a few dollars in stocks that pay dividends every month. And I'm starting to think about cash flow. Because my one day in my dreams, I um, will retire on, on just a few thousand dollars a month in dividends. If we can get a few thousand dollars a month, from dividend stocks, we can have the great ultimate passive income and retire. And I started thinking about cash flow. So the basics of how I would define cash flow is the money, the actual money, forget the asset, the house, because it's grounded and it's not very liquid. You can't really you know, liquidate it in an instant and you can only do it once. But cash flow on a monthly basis is the money coming into your wallet or and or the money coming out of your wallet. So in terms of cash flow, the house is definitely a liability. So, so if cash flow were, I guess, an adjective, the, it would be a cash flow liability. It's an emotional asset. My dividend stocks are cash flow assets. Here. Yeah, yeah. We are talking money. Money, money. So... tax money. Yeah. So, so that house is a liability. It is. Okay. But, it, but it provides us with value. It does. Because we find it valuable to sleep in a great house and not in the cold and rain. It does. So you see how it's both. Makes sense. It it is both. If if you yeah, open up the definition of asset to also include. You know how you feel about it and not just money not just financially i suppose yeah so that, that's how i think of it again i'm curious if you want to comment um i'm curious how you guys think of a house i've heard it called an asset i've heard it called a liability a lot of you know experts who fancy themselves the greatest economists in the world mm -hmm. on youtube say a house is not an asset breaking news it's a liability and, you know a million guys on youtube say that so it's not breaking anymore but i i, I hear it i i think it's um. both because it, it, it provides you with value and anything that you find valuable is an asset. So it does in a sense. But if, let's say, let's just say it's a house that we have, but we haven't been putting in like, you know, we haven't invested in it, haven't started fixing stuff. So we initially bought the house for $250,000. Now in a span of, let's just say we paid it off within 20 years instead of like the 30. We save money because... The interest is less. Yeah, we already saved a lot of interest. Yeah. But the value of the house also depreciated. Depreciated? 
because okay. we haven't been doing um, enhancements in the house or we haven't been okay. um, keeping up with the maintenance. So from two fifty, it now went to two hundred thousand. So in a sense, we just lost fifty thousand dollars. So at that point, when we resell it, unless we make um, what do you call that? Um, improvements. Improvements on the house. Yeah. It would be more of a more of a liability for sure. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess. So I guess what you're saying is a house being an asset versus liability depends on the the home value going up or down. Home value. Yes. I yeah, I, I, I hear that. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So it's it's really interesting. I'm I'm thinking about cash flow a lot recently, and like, you know, most people would invest in stocks or the conventional wisdom to invest in in stocks or, or any securities is to look at your portfolio value, right? So you might look at your Robinhood portfolio or, or any portfolio and say, I have a certain amount. I have a certain amount. By the time I retire, if I do this and that and the other and I get some you know, 5% growth a year, by the time I retire, it'll be a million dollars and then I can retire at 60, it'll be a million dollars. But what I, I really want the viewers to understand is that $1 million, granted with inflation 2% compounding per year per year, that million dollars may really um, be worth around you know around half a million dollars in, in 50 years mm -hmm. when you retire. But forgetting that, the, the million dollars, you can only use it once, right? When you have a million dollars in your Robinhood portfolio, you retire, you get one shot because it's, it's consumable. You consume a million dollars, you live for five years, and now you're, you're pretty screwed, right? As opposed to dividends, which is why I love dividends, because it gives you monthly cash flow. So once your dividends, and it takes a lot to get there, you need a tremendous portfolio, but forget the portfolio value. Once your dividends are consistently $1,000 a month, you are good to go forever. In fact, dividends generally go up because there are dividend increases, there's compounding reinvestment of the dividend, and the stock price could go up as well. We so you're good to go forever. We will discuss this more in detail in our next few um, podcasts. Yeah, well. yeah. So I was thinking about that. Like, if once you build up to a, a good dividend portfolio, you get money forever. As long as they're they're you know reliable stocks or ETFs, you can get money forever and ever. And the value of the portfolio doesn't even matter that much. It could say a million, a half a million, three million. It matters what your cash flow is every month, right? Because if you withdraw it all and spend it all, you only get one shot to piss it away. Once it's gone, it's gone. But if you're getting dividends every month, then your your principal stays there forever, and it just gives you a few thousand dollars a month. And that's why I love you know dividends. Well, and it's just cash flow, and, and the cash flow in and out. That's all that matters at the end of the day. True, but it also depends on how much investment you put in that um, specific, let's say, stocks that gives you dividends, and also um, the stability of that stock. Because if it is a highly volatile um yeah. stock then you know from a dividend of three we just give you like one to zero or something like that well that's a great point and we can talk about we can do a full show on that and and i think what you're getting at is the higher the reward the higher the risk in general which is pretty much a rule that applies you know in in almost 100 percent of cases in economics yeah. of the higher the potential reward most likely the higher the potential risk and that's why what I recently did, because I'm still a baby investor, I'm still learning, is I had a lot of, I had some money in some, some stocks and ETFs that said these crazy numbers like the dividend yield. So the annual 20, percentage. Yeah, yeah, crazy 25%. numbers. 25%. Not 20, 50, you know, 80, 130. But Insane numbers. So, so the dividend percentage, if you go to uh, your Robinhood or go to dividend.com, which is phenomenal, um, it's all about, you know, dividend stocks, of course, or just, you know, Google, 
it'll say the dividend percentage, which is the percentage of the stock price that they'll pay out a year. If you have a hundred dollar stock or a hundred dollars worth of a certain stock of uh, ABC company, if it's a 4% dividend yield, you'll get $4 a year annually, the whole year for that hundred dollars that you have in the stock. Um, so that would be a 4% dividend. I think they say 4% is great up to 8%, you know, is phenomenal. Anything more than 8%, it's such a big reward that, you know, high reward, high risk. And they say it's probably a risky company. Now, the other thing I think I learned also about high dividends, because as the market went down, the last six months, the market, you know, it plummeted. It's kind of going up and down a little bit, but the market plummeted in the last few months since, I don't know, maybe January because, because of COVID. So, you know, the U.S. market, the world market. So as the price goes down, and this is how I think it works, and I'm sure commenters will, will correct me if I'm wrong. And I don't know if I explained this to you, so see if I could explain this and see if you understand this. The dividend yield measures the last dividend payout, let's say more quarterly, monthly, annually, let's say annually to make it simple. It measures that versus the stock price, right? So if uh, there's a $100 stock, one share of ABC is $100. The last payment was uh, $17. It says, based on that calculation, it tells you the dividend is 17%. Correct. Now that looks very high, and it's too high. It means it's too good to be true, meaning it usually is. The reason that it says 17% is because right now, when you're doing that calculation, when you open up your Robinhood that day, it's $17 was the last dividend it paid out for $100 in the stock annually. But the stock, when it first paid it out six months ago, was $1,000. But the, the stock plummeted along with the rest of the market. So now it's $100. Makes but sense. So now it just appears higher because now it's a higher percentage of what the stock currently is. I think that's how it works and why we have these super inflated dividend prices that are fake. Because the stock recently plummeted and now it looks like the dividend was very high because the stock was here and the dividend was here and the stock plummeted. Now it looks like they're actually pretty close. I'm actually very curious. I think if, that's how it works. I'm, I'm curious because there are monthly dividends and um, quarterly dividends. Yeah. Um, I haven't really compared like in my portfolio which ones are the the higher yields one or are they the quarterly ones or are they the monthly ones? So I'm well, not... well, it, that goes by annual, so it doesn't really matter in that sense because okay. the the dividend yield is is the year that might be split up in quarters or twelfths. That's only the payout. Yeah, that's the payout per year. Per year. Yeah, and that's why in that spreadsheet that I, I shared with you, I know it's a big spreadsheet. You might not have seen that part. It's a tremendous spreadsheet I have for dividends. It says in a note in that uh, cell, there's a note and it says annual, because I know some are paid 12 times a year, some are four times, some are one time a year. Um, but yeah, that figure, so if it says a 5% dividend, that means the whole year. So if it's monthly, you're gonna split that 5% by by 12, and then it will be like, you know, less than one, so it'll be like around half a percent. So that's why the monthly dividends they pay every month, but it seems like it pays very little, because it's a 12th of the total annual dividend. And we're gonna get into, into all that, you know, dividend stuff in, in a later episode. Hopefully, we'll have an actual investing expert or someone who knows uh, dividend investing or at least at least basic stock and, and ETF trading and investing to uh, tell us. But yeah, I really want to get into that also in a future episode about high risk, high reward, and then other types of you know uh, investing or gambling, however you want to look at it. Um, but yeah, I, I did recently move pretty much all of my my uh, investments into a lot more stable ETFs and index funds and just. The S&P 500, the, the whole thing, or the whole stock market, and that way I feel a little more stable. Because um, I had, you know, that been pretty some pretty volatile stuff. Hopefully, it gives you a bit more of a asset, an asset. Yeah, asset. yeah. 
Yeah. And, and another thing we have to talk about in a future episode is in terms of asset liability because that will be a recurring theme because it's all that's the name of the game asset liability and cash flow is we've written a few articles now and you know people get upset because they don't quite understand a an employee could be an asset or liability if you hire an employee and they're phenomenal and they provide value to your company they're an asset if they are a detriment to your company financially or otherwise they're a liability and when again certain laws unfortunately politics is involved certain laws that require you to pay an employee a certain amount even though they may or may not work or they may be terrible to make them they shift the employee more into the liability column because they make you less valuable to the company and you don't want to you don't want anyone to make you a liability not the government not anyone you want to be the great asset you are to a company so if someone made you a liability by breaking your legs you'd be upset right so that's another thing we'll talk about with some you know labor laws and restrictions and wage laws and a whole lot of the labor labor laws and pretty much from what i understand i would say 100 percent of labor laws make employees into more liabilities that they move them towards being a liability great first episode <laughs> anything else you want to say in, in closing i do not at this time but yeah thank you guys are you having for fun listening. yet yeah thank you guys for listening um would you consider coming back to be a co-host again maybe possibly yes if time permits most of the time we don't see each other as much so i guess we'll see that's great. All right. Well, thank you very much for co-hosting. I had a lot of fun with you. Thank you. Me too. And thanks for listening. We'd appreciate any feedback in the comments or uh, message us, email us. And hopefully we'll do it again next week. Thank you very much. And have a great night.